everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Sports Bar. My name is Andrew, and I am a graduate of the Florida International University College of Law. I also co-host the Sports Goofs podcast with two of my friends from FIU, and this series is sort of a spin-off from that. The purpose of this show is fairly simple, to explain how sports and law intersect. Law is involved in almost every area of the modern sports world, whether it is big headline news like today's topic of the NCAA case that was heard at the Supreme Court on March 31st, 2021, or under-the-radar events like negotiating an endorsement deal or developing rules. In these and in many other ways, law is a major part of sports, and we are here to break it down. With all of that being said, let's jump right into the case. There were actually two cases before the Supreme Court on the 31st, but the court felt that the topics were similar enough so that they would be heard at the same time. The cases are National Collegiate Athletic Association v. Sean Alston et al. and American Athletic Conference et al. v. Sean Alston et al. Sean Alston is the named plaintiff in this case. He was a running back for the West Virginia University Mountaineers from 2009 to 2012. However, this is what's called a class action case which means that he is representing numerous other people, and to have them all file individual lawsuits would take too much time and effort. So they all just group themselves together. Major areas where you would hear of a class action case include products liability, tobacco cases, where hundreds of thousands of people are suing the same company. In this case, it's a bit smaller because there were 26 other athletes joining in. Even though the main defendant in this case is the NCAA, they also sued the Pac-12, Conference USA, Big Ten, MAC, SEC, ACC, Mountain West, Big 12, Sunbelt, WAC, and the American Athletic Conference. But just to save some time here, we're just going to say the NCAA. This case began back in 2014 when the lawsuit was initially filed. The case first reached a court in 2019 at the United States District Court for the Northern District of California. Judge Claudia Wilkin presided over the case and ruled in favor of Alston. Following that decision, the NCAA appealed to the next level of courts, which was the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. The court heard the case in 2020, and they affirmed or agreed to uphold Judge Wilkins' ruling. The NCAA then appealed to the United States Supreme Court, which agreed to take the case. The oral arguments occurred on March 31st, and a ruling will be announced sometime in the next couple of months. So, joining me today is my friend Zach. He is an attorney in the Kansas City area who, as a matter of fact, studied this case when he was in law school and wrote an article that he submitted to his school's law review. Zach, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, good to be here. Appreciate it. Um, kind of this case had been on the back burner for a while and happy to kind of bring forth all that, that time and effort I spent researching it back and get to talk about it again. So excited to be here. And it's great because you love college sports, college football as much as I do. So it's a great way to 
intertwine our love of college sports and the law, which which a lot of people don't understand as much as we do, where you kind of geek <laughs> out a little bit about it. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd like to think uh, that's that's the case. That, but yeah, it's certainly something that that people are passionate about, myself included. I think people have felt that there that there is change coming for a while, and, and I think everyone's really curious what that when that change is going to come and what it's going to look like when it does. And you know, you're hearing a lot of commentary that this case really is a, a potential big domino in in order for changing our current collegiate model and I think that's completely accurate. If you want to just dive down a little bit, you, you mentioned that the the issue in this case was educational benefits. What sort of things are the athletes talking about when it comes to educational benefits? In general that's you know you think of the calculation for full cost of attendance that includes room, board, so all of your food, so that's where athletes were able to get unlimited uh, dining after the O'Bannon case. You have your textbooks, and then you have your, then you have all your athletic-related expenses and things like that, and like small stipends for travel and stuff, and which is more particularly relevant in the smaller sports where things aren't as regimented, and you maybe you're flying commercially instead of in a chartered plane like what you have for football and men's basketball but it but namely it doesn't include a lot of ancillary educational equipment like laptops or if you're in art classes art supplies and all kinds of things like that and that's what it that's that's what is that issue here but also this would allow you know the the challenge if if upheld it would allow for more blanket educational benefits so you're giving students a much bigger blank check rather than just specifically tying it to the full cost of attendance calculation. Now we get to the arguments from the Supreme Court case. And the central point of everything is something called the Sherman Act. You mentioned that in addition to researching this case for that article, you also enjoyed antitrust in law school, that class. So what is exactly the Sherman Act and what is antitrust for that matter? The Sherman Act emerges kind of the at the end of the 19th century when most people learned about it in kind of their middle school or, or high school history classes where, you know, you learn about the big trusts that were formed between whether it be the railroads or Standard Oil and U.S. Steel. So you think of the big titans of American industrialization, kind of like the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers or Andrew Carnegie. You know, these were guys who built these massive companies that really worked to get rid of competitors and also worked together to achieve untold levels of profitability that had never been seen before. So they they fully leveraged that industrialization and, and used their power to, to drive out competitors. So, so, the, so Congress responds in, in 1890 with the Sherman Act that starts to try to regulate our previously virtually unregulated economy. Our, our economy is built, on, is built on the foundation of a free market, but when those big trusts emerge like Standard Oil or U.S. Steel, those giant companies emerged, we start to see that the benefits of the free market started to wane. So we needed policy to come in and say, no, we're, we need 
we need legislation that preserves the benefits of the free market for for the greater population, not just allowing people to take advantage of it purely to support their own best interest. So it's divided into, into two sections. They're very simple, unlike modern statutes that can be enormously complex. It's very straightforward in, in, in its conception that either you have section one is for agreements between firms that should be competing that create uncompetitive market conditions, or section two is targeted towards monopolization. So one firm or one business that gets too big and has too much market power to where it, it dominates and, and can create uncompetitive conditions. I'm going to quote here the the question, the actual questions that are that were before them when the argument was made, which one whether the Ninth Circuit erroneously held in conflict with the decisions of other circuits and general antitrust principles that the National Collegiate Athletic Association eligibility rules regarding compensation of student athletes violate federal antitrust law. And then the second, whether the Sherman Act authorizes a court to subject the product defining rules of a joint venture to full rule of reason review and to hold those rules unlawful if, in the court's view, they are not the least restrictive means that could have been used to accomplish their pro-competitive goal. So we already covered the first, in essence, whether what the NCAA is doing is violating antitrust, but dive a little bit more into that second question, rule of reason, least restrictive means, etc. So the rule of reason is how we actually evaluate whether or not behavior is pro-competitive or anti-competitive. So anti-competitive is bad. We don't want that. Pro-competitive leads to competition in the market, and that's good as a general matter. So because when the Sherman Act itself says that, essentially says that all agreements between firms if you just read it on its face, all all agreements between firms are per se illegal. Per se in this case meaning automatically illegal in a sense or assumed to be illegal. Correct. So if you, yeah, the Sherman text, the, the text of Sherman 1, if you just read it, it says essentially any agreement between firms would be illegal. But quickly the uh, courts realize that this does not make sense. There are times when firms need to make agreements between themselves in order, or firms that are in competition need to make agreements between themselves to allow markets to operate efficiently. And actually, sports are a really good example of that because you can't have firms that are just blindly competing against each other. They have to be able to create some sort of level playing field. Otherwise, you aren't able to design a competition that takes place on the field that that people are willing to want to pay to come to see. Otherwise, it would just be complete unorganized chaos. There's a famous quote in a, a case back in the 1920s that what sports businesses are selling is competition itself. So if they can't create an environment that has good on the field competition, then they don't have a good business model. So they have to be able to set all different kinds of rules between themselves that all the all the competing firms must abide by in order to have that 
economically viable and popular competition that we all love to go watch or watch on TV. So now we have a primer of what the case is about. Now let's discuss what the parties are actually arguing. Let's start with the appellant, the NCAA, the one who is appealing the lower court ruling. What are they saying? So the NCAA has to say that, as we mentioned, the cap that they're setting on student-athlete compensation, that actually has pro-competitive effects. And the NCAA asserts two effects that they believe stem from the, stems from the cap on compensation. So the first is that the popularity of, essentially that the popularity of college athletics is tied to amateurism. And if athletes are, are not amateurs, if they're, making, if they're making money more so than just the education that they're provided, that the, the popularity of the NCAA will wane and the NCAA will be less able to accomplish its, its mission, which I don't think anyone argue is a bad thing, but its mission is to provide opportunities for student-athletes to go to college and compete in, in athletics. And, and, and this is the argument that I think most people would jump on and say that, you know, that's ridiculous. And I would agree that in this case, it, it, it is ridiculous. But at some le- the problem is at some level, it does have merit. So, you know, the classic argument is, well, why athletes, from the NCAA's perspective, they would say that athletes need to be amateurs because look at how popular our sports are compared to minor league baseball. The fact that these athletes are amateurs distinguishes them from the rest of the professional sports landscape. And the the second pro-competitive reason that the NCAA asserts is that if you pay student-athletes more, they will be less tied to their educations and will focus on it less. So essentially, they're arguing that the athletes will get a less quality education. Now, Alston, the, the plaintiffs challenging the NCAA at the trial level, and they're, they're the respondents at the appellate level, they're asserting that essentially that there's no evidence that this would be the case if you remove the, the cap on educational compensation. They're saying that their argument is that the NCAA is acting as a monopsonist, which, and, th- and that's essentially a, a moot point. It, it all comes down to, or both parties will stipulate that point stipulate which both parties will agree whatever they're stipulating to they're not contesting it correct so they're yeah no one is contesting they agree with the the first prong of the sherman one test so everyone agrees that there is an agreement between competing firms that's not really at issue here so the ncaa has made those agreements it all comes down to the evidence of whether or not if you remove those caps on education, will college athletics start to become less po- less popular and will athletes have less of a quality education? Hi, everybody. This is Francisco Porta. I just came in here to say that we're going to take a bit of a short break for our sponsors and then we'll get right back to Sports Bar with Andrew Sagona here on Sports Goofs. Thank you to our sponsors. And now let's get back to Sports Bar with Andrew Sagona here on Sports Goofs. So now that we've discussed the arguments that that both parties made, now let's get into our analysis, if you will, of what was actually what actually occurred. So 
doing a bit of reading at some of the quotes and what some of the justices said, you would get the impression that they are going to rule in favor of Alston. And pretty much any article you see online acts to the same effect. They think, oh, it's, it's a slam dunk, to use a sports metaphor, I guess. And there were, in particular, quotes, questions from Chief Justice John Roberts, Justice Clarence Thomas, who I should note is a major fan of the Nebraska Cornhuskers, and Justice Samuel Alito. Their major point of questioning was kind of centered around how is it that the NCAA, these conferences, can be making billions upon billions of dollars and not give any sort of compensation to the players? I think one thing one of them mentioned was how schools are allowed to pay $50,000 toward a $10 million insurance policy to support the players if they get injured and can't go pro. And one of them mentioned that they they thought it was pay-for-play, in essence, that they're almost treating them like pro-athletes. Did you get a chance to look at much of what the justices said? Yeah, I, it, I think that they almost universally were were skeptical of that the that the restriction is achieving the the pro competitive pur- purposes that the NCAA is asserting. Um, Justice Alito, in particular, was was harping on the the graduation weight or lack thereof for for athletes in the Power Five that compete in men's basketball or college football, and the the NCAA argues that they're that athletes will become detached from the academic process, but there's overwhelming evidence that they already are. They live in largely separated dorms and together. Colleges, again, especially at the the Power Five level, that's really at the issue, the, the schools that make the most money off the athletes, they are pouring millions and millions of dollars into these massive training facilities and training tables, which are student athletes, student athlete only cafeterias, and and these training centers that only the athletes are allowed to access, and they also get access to private tutoring. That the that the athletes already predominantly live their lives in a bubble. They they spend so much time, and their schedules are so streamlined to allow them to spend as much time focusing on their sport as possible. That it's really not possible for a change in compensation to have a, a difference on that at this point. So now what would you say the justices talked about on the other side going against Alston? Yeah, I mean, the, regardless of whether or not you agree with Supreme Court justices, most of them are great at examining both sides of, of an argument. And so they, they can, during an oral argument, it can be hard to tell what side they're actually for because they will often make, they will often or ask pointed questions that attack both sides' position. But I think the biggest concern that they have is what happens when we kind of open the door for compensation and allowing the NCAA's rules to be subject to rule of reason scrutiny. It it appeared that a lot of them were struggling to see where the end game is. And so you could see them think about them formulating in their mind, okay, how do we craft this so that 
we create pro-competitive effects, but without completely destroying the system. Because I think everyone would agree for the most part that a totally unrestrained market on student athlete services could have some really negative effects. If there were, if there was no cap on compensation whatsoever, then, and, and no one was setting limits, then things could get out of control depending on who was in charge of each individual institution and athletic departments could bankrupt themselves trying to get these blue chip athletes that may or may not pan out and may spend less and less money on the non-revenue sports that especially at the power five level depend on that revenue that the power or that the that the that football and basketball generate to pay for their own operations and allow those students to have an have an opportunity to compete and it's and it's an interesting question of what will happen to schools outside of the power five so i think back in the latest data i have is from 2014 and 15 but for schools that aren't in the power five at least 45 to 50 percent of their budget comes from subsidies from the actual academic institution over the last 15 20 years the Power Five has had the luxury because of the burgeoning TV contracts. They have been able to wean themselves off of getting any kind of funding from the academic institution. So if you're at if you're at an OU, a Texas, and Alabama, you're not actually paying student fees that go to athletics. But if you go to like a UCF or a Cincinnati or something like that, those you're paying student fees to the athletic department to allow them to have big athletic departments that can try to compete against those power five schools. Now let's get to predictions. What are your thoughts, Zach, on how this will turn out? I, I think it became pretty clear from or, the oral argument that the NCAA is going to lose and that the Supreme Court is going to uphold the trial court decision and the appellate court decision stating that the cap on educational benefits is not permissible. But the question becomes what happens after that? And I, and I think that is anyone's guess. I think probably all nine of the members of the court will be in agreement on that, okay, this restriction is not permissible but they may degree or they may disagree wildly on what that actually means and the scope of the decision that they create and and the hints that they may drop as to how they would rule on a on a future case it, it so at the going back to the trial level the plaintiffs offered three alternatives for how the the cap could be administered or how the student athlete compensation would be regulated if she were to rule in the plaintiff's favor. Plaintiffs gave her three options and she selected the one that I think makes the most sense in that she still wasn't going to, she, her ruling does not allow schools to offer rewards or gifts at graduation. So a school could not just put like a hundred thousand dollars set aside to give to an athlete when he graduates. That would still be impermissible and still be a national rule. But as far as caps on education, they would be allowed to be set at the conference level. So a general principle of antitrust law, looking at kind of the from a, a monopoly perspective or a monopsonist perspective, is that you need three to five competing firms in, in, in order to have a competitive market. So obviously there are just in the power five alone, there are five conferences there. 
plus the other plus the group of five at Division One, and then many other conferences at the Division Two and Division Three level. And so her ruling would allow the conferences themselves to set limits for all of their individual members, but they would still compete against each other as to what that limit for educational compensation would be. And my guess is that will be upheld to some extent. And looking into a crystal ball to cast a a long-term future prediction, I think that's where this is going to be eventually. So I don't know how long it'll take to get there, but 5, 10, 15 years into the future, I think what the scope of the NCAA looks like is that football and basketball athletes are being paid out of the conference TV contracts at the conference level and that each conference will set a level of compensation outside of or of, of true compensation for their scholarship athletes. I think that's where this is headed, but there's a lot of stuff that has to be worked out in order to get there. Again, thank you so much, Zach, for coming on the show today. You offered a lot of great insight into this case, and I enjoyed talking with you immensely. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. It's, it's going to be interesting, and, and it's really exciting because, I mean, it it's, it's a time when you can really feel that we are, that it is going to be kind of a watershed moment in the history of college athletics. And it's, it's completely exciting to be on the kind of to have a front row seat to it. So, um, yeah, I will be uh, just like you. I think I'll be eagerly waiting uh, to see the release of this case and then uh, be ready to speculate about what's going to happen after that. So uh, hopefully and maybe talk to you then. Once again, my name is Andrew, and and this was the first episode of Sports Bar. Hopefully you enjoyed, and we should be back fairly soon with another discussion of how sports and law intertwine. If you have any suggestions for what you would like us to cover, please send them in a comment, and thank you very much for listening.